You are listening to the award-winning The Young Jerks with Mike Crawford. I'm really excited to to bring her up right now. Uh, She is currently, she's a former executive of New England Treatment Access. If you followed our work for quite a while, that's where you know the criticism came in. But she has since become a Massachusetts uh, Cannabis Advisory Board member. And that's really what I want to talk about with her tonight. And so I'm going to bring her up right now. I'm really happy uh, and honored that she's agreed to come on the show tonight. Uh, let's bring her up. Amanda Rosatano, welcome to The Young Jerks. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to Th- be here. Thank you for being here. Um, I- I'm stealing this from another show. This guy, Caleb, he has a thing that he does where he asks, the guests to give their five minute life story. All right. To kick off the show. So you have a quite a story. So what, what's your five minute life story? Sure. Um, well, thanks for having me tonight. Um, as you mentioned, you know, we, we, we've got a little bit of a history, but I think we can all, we can all work past that. Um, you know, really all about sort of building bridges in this industry and helping to move it forward in the most positive way. So, uh, so grateful to be here tonight to be able to speak to your audience and and um, and talk a little bit about the work that that I've been doing um, with the Cannabis Advisory Board in Massachusetts and 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 kind of beyond. So, I guess whew, my my story in cannabis. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I've been a I've been a cannabis person. I would say pretty much my whole life. Um, my my parents were were cannabis users. I didn't really know that until later on in life um, when I really learned about how cannabis had impacted my, my father's life in a, in a real positive way and, and was sort of something that helped him work through um, a lot of uh, uh, depression and, and anxiety issues that he had after losing a child. Um, I, I lost my father when I was 16 years old and struggled with a lot of anxiety and, and, um, and other issues as a result of that. Um, I'm trying to tell my story in five minutes, but it's like some of these pieces, like I could just break off and talk about for a long time. So um, long story short, uh, cannabis has been really important to me from both a medicinal value, but also from a social justice standpoint. And when I got to be um, sort of a young adult and was a pretty you know, regular cannabis user, um, really understood the the disproportionate harms that, that have been um, the result of, of cannabis prohibition and sort of set it to be one of my goals to start to influence and help to change cannabis policy. So I, I got my undergrad degree at, at Emerson College, but then to your point, I went back and I did a graduate program at UMass Boston specifically to focus on politics and public policy. Um, I went to work in the legislature. I worked for Representative Frank Smyzek, who when I joined was a six-time lead sponsor of medical cannabis legislation here in the state of Massachusetts. Um, I had just finished up that program at UMass where I focused my studies on cannabis policy reform in 2008, wrote a paper called The Morality of Marijuana, trying to make the case for marijuana legalization and really access to to medicinal marijuana for for patients who needed it first and foremost. Interviewed folks like Lester Grinspoon, um, who who, is is a legend in this space, Matt Allen, who is the head of the Mass Patient Advocacy Alliance, um, and others to really put that case forward. Went to work in the legislature, got to work on the medical law after it eventually passed via ballot, and then worked hand in hand with the Department of Public Health and the rep that I worked for to really advocate for the piece of the law 
that allows a doctor to write a recommendation for any debilitating condition. So that was sort of the thing that, that, that we, um, we pushed for and we were successful in getting um, through my process working in the legislature. Uh, that's where I got to know the founders of NETA. And it was after they had been awarded their one of the first medical licenses in the state that I joined the team. I was their first employee. And uh, as the story goes, I was there for the course of seven years and worked my way up in the organization to become the head of operations, the head of compliance, and then eventually became the president of the company right, uh, right as it was being acquired before it was acquired by Sertera Wellness in, in 2018, 2019. Sorry. Um, I left in 2020 for a variety of reasons that I, I won't get into, but uh, really just I, the way that I like to describe it is like, it felt time for me to take my impact elsewhere. Um, while I was at NETA, you know, I, I, I was appointed to the Cannabis Advisory Board. And after I left, I was appointed for a second term. Um, so I have, you know, very, have been heavily involved in, in, in policy work um, from the beginning here. I, you know, I advocated for things like the exclusivity period for social equity applicants, um, the wholesale delivery license, you know, when, when most other operators were saying we shouldn't do this, that was something that, you know, and so, you know, I've, I've tried to use my position in the industry to, um, to advocate for policy changes that I think, you know, will drive the industry forward. And that's sort of my goal. Now, after I left, I started my own company. Um, it's called Soulstar Holdings. I'm the CEO and founder, and we are, uh, we are starting uh, a retail store in New Jersey this summer. Um, and then we are also um, the winners of uh, one of 16 social equity licenses that were that were awarded in the state uh, with our partner um, in Connecticut um, to launch cultivation and, and manufacturing operations in Connecticut. So still involved on the operations side um, and still heavily involved on the on the policy side and, and sort of really have this interesting perspective now of seeing these other markets to come to life after Massachusetts on the East Coast and how they're approaching some of the very issues like testing, like like social equity, uh, like just operations in general um, as compared to how we, how we did it here. So I think learning from what we've done here. Um, I love cannabis, I always have. Um, I'm, a, I'm a longtime consumer. Um, it's something that makes me a better person uh, and, and a better parent. Uh, I have two kids at home, five and 10, and, uh, and my husband, uh, who, uh, who also owns and operates Pico Restaurant in the south end of Boston. So a quick shout out there. No way. Yeah, yeah, so I we're- I know that. Yep. I know Pico. How do I know Pico? I think, that, that, isn't there some politicians that do parties there? So Pico's, but it's a long-standing South End institution. We do gourmet pizza, homemade ice cream. Um, you might, I mean, it's been around yeah. for a while. Um, so you may have just heard I know, it. I know it. Yeah. I think I've been there actually a few times. Now I'm realizing, yes, the pizza. So, yeah. yeah um, so, I, I mean, that's, I guess, my five-minute version of, of my background. Um, but I've been in this space for a long time. And, and uh, I care a lot about the direction of the industry and hoping to leverage my, my influence as a cannabis advisory board member to help drive policy changes here in Massachusetts, you know, to the benefit of, of consumers and, and patients and businesses alike, because I think we can do that. Now you mentioned uh, a name from the past, Matt Allen, who, yeah. you know, I, I know very well. It's funny. Cause I, you know, I was at the New England cannabis convention with you this weekend and 
I just looked around and I saw a lot of young people, which is awesome. Like, but I realized that they don't even, they don't even recall like 10 years ago, like what was going on back then. Uh, I know you do because you're, you're talking about, you know, times before it was even medically legal. Um, What, what do you think about like, just how, like how this has gone? Like, are you surprised like how it, how it's turned out? Cause to me, it's kind of like, I don't know. I never expected it to happen like this. I don't know. It just, it just like really surprising to see the way it is now. I, I think that we have a long ways to go, but I'm grateful every day that like I live in a place that cannabis is legal for adults who are 21, right? We've come a long way. Um, I think that we are seeing more and more states coming online prioritizing social equity. And so it's not, it's not an afterthought. It's, you know, it's, it's foundational to building these programs in these new markets, which I think is, is progress, right? None of these programs are perfect. None of them have figured out the secret sauce to like making an equitable industry, but everybody keeps putting their best foot forward. Well, a foot forward. It's who knows if it's the best or not. Um, I, so I'm optimistic that we can continue to make progress, but we have to keep going, right? Like people have to keep being involved. We can't just sort of, you know, it's crazy. Sometimes I still talk to people in Massachusetts who don't even know that it's legal. Um, or, you know, I'm a parent. I have two kids. I've got a five-year-old and a 10-year-old. And I'm talking to other parents who like to consume cannabis, right? I had, I had a whole basketball team over yesterday after championship game. And, you know, people are like, oh, they like what I do and they want to talk about cannabis, but it's so hush hush still. Right. So, like, I just think there's such a ways to go in terms of like normalizing this as something that is a lifestyle choice or, you know, something no different than anything else that an adult chooses to use um, and sort of reframing the conversation about about cannabis in our society. I think it's time it's time to to, to reframe the conversation. It's funny because I, I see the opposite side of that, too, where younger people don't even especially the ones living in Massachusetts, like they are like shocked that someone like myself was arrested for cannabis, just using cannabis, you know, for medical use. You know, I had been arrested for it in Massachusetts. Like, you know, I'm not a guy that's a hundred years old. You know what I mean? So they look at me and they're like, they can't believe that happened in our lifetime. Some of them, they're just like, assume that it's just like, it's cool now, you know? So no, it's a really good point. You know, the flip side of that is like really appreciating how far we have come and like, much work went into that. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. It's definitely something we can take for granted to be able to go out to the store and, and, and pick up some weed, you know? Yeah. I think it's amazing that, you know, uh, unfortunately we can't, uh, uh, Dick boss and talk a joint memo, put out a, uh, like, a. I don't know what you call it. I'm, I'm trying to find the right words, my COVID mind, but it's kind of like a guide, a, a, you know, info on the convention for out of towners. One of the things they mentioned is that, you know, you can't consume inside, but don't worry about outside. And it's so true now. Like, even though we passed, when we passed the legalization, there was, you know, this, this thing that you could still get a fine outside, which some of us, you know, actually were worried about at first. Um, we actually started doing protests, asking them to find us and they wouldn't find us. <laughs> but uh, now they don't find at all. I don't know if people can hear that. I'm hearing it through my headphones. Um, but nobody like gets fined anymore. Like there's no cops will drive by you smoking a joint. And it's really not an issue in Massachusetts anymore, which is it's, it is, it's like night and day compared to the past. It's, you know, I feel like 
it's not an issue anymore. As long as I'm not in the car, I'm sitting outside, I'm not going to get harassed by police. Well, hopefully that's true for everybody, but it might not be, um, that, you know, that certain it depends on where you live too. Right. Exactly. And, 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 you know, it depends on how you look as to whether or not you're still going to get harassed by police. So I, you know, again, I think there's, there's a long way to go, but we need to keep, uh, we need to keep chipping away at it and, you know, keep improving, I think the policy side of things, but also, you know, the discussion and, you know, the, the openness about talking about cannabis, um, and, and what it means to be a cannabis consumer doesn't mean you're, you know, a, a, a sloppy stoner. And, you know, like some of the most productive people I know are people who consume cannabis every day or multiple times a day and it actually makes them more functional. Um, I'm, I'm one of those people. <laughs> so yeah, me too. I always said that uh, I think I work so hard so I could afford my cannabis. <laughs> like, you know, you. I don't know. That's just a mindset. You know, I, I think a lot of people have that kind of mindset. Um, let's get to the kind of cannabis advisory board. Tell us about the Massachusetts cannabis advisory board that you serve on and what its role is and what you guys are working on right now. Sure. So the, the advisory board is a 25 uh, member, uh, appointed board. It's appointed by, um, the state treasurer, the state attorney general, and the governor, I believe are the three appointing offices. Um, and um, it's a volunteer board, so nobody's getting paid to be on the Cannabis Advisory Board. And it's comprised of experts from a variety of different uh, stakeholder groups, um, folks from the industry, fro folks from law enforcement, folks, you know, with all different backgrounds that can bring something to the, that can bring something to the table as it, as it relates to um, thinking through and making recommendations on, on cannabis policy for the cannabis advice, uh, cannabis control commission. So it's our job to advise and make recommendations to the, to the, uh, cannabis control commission on, on regulatory issues and policy issues. Um, typically the way that the advisory board works is it's, um, it's broken up into subcommittees with certain topic areas. So there is a, and I didn't, I don't have these memorized, but I'll, I'll try my best, um, there's a market participation subcommittee that focuses on participation in the cannabis industry. Um, and there's a research subcommittee, there's a public health subcommittee. Um, and I cannot remember, I think there's there's a couple of others, but I, I sit on the uh, cannabis research, research subcommittee, which is chaired by uh, Dr. Marion McNabb. Uh, I also sit on the market participation subcommittee, which Kim Napoli, uh, who was supposed to be here with us tonight. Um, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Thank yeah, you. had some issues. Kim, you know, we, we advertised that Kim Napoli would be here tonight. Unfortunately, she's having some uh, technical issues with the Internet. So we, I, I, I missed I definitely miss Kim Napoli being here tonight. I know probably some listeners do, too. So I'm glad. Thank you for bringing that out, Amanda. Yeah, no problem. So, you know, I can, you know, so. The advisory board is is only as active as uh, its members, you know, make it right. And so it's one of those things where, you know, it depends on and who's chairing the committee and how much time and effort they're going to put into it. What's going to come out of the, the other side of that 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 subcommittee. So uh, I've been fortunate to have, you know, to, to, to have active subcommittee committees this uh, this go around where we've been really, really focusing on um, 
this regulatory period that's going to be coming up, the CCC right now is going is is entering or has entered its regulatory review period, and our subcommittees are taking a look at some of the most important issues that we think are should be should be taken up by uh, by the Cannabis Control Commission. Um, the 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 research subcommittee, for example. Um, We've made recommendations uh, for that, that related to access for, for veterans, um, improving access for, for veterans here in Massachusetts. Um, and most recently, we released our draft recommendations um, that um, speak to lab testing here in Massachusetts and labeling of, of cannabis and cannabis products and some of the, the improvements we think can be made there, but also acknowledging in those recommendations that it's a complicated topic and that there needs to be some more study on some of these. So that's sort of built into the recommendations in and of itself. So, you know, the advisory board, um, I think is a really important voice. And I think that this commission in particular is really paying attention to the advisory board, has really engaged the advisory board. Um, I think in the past, it's been kind of a mixed bag in terms of how serious the advisory board is being taken from the, the cannabis control commissioners themselves. But this particular commission, I think, has been uh, has been really, uh, really great in terms of, you know, Kimberly Roy, for example, has been at every single one of our research subcommittee meetings. She's listening. You know, she's she's contributing. So I think we're seeing a lot more um, from the commission themselves in terms of leveraging that body. And, you know, I, you know, maybe, maybe I'm a little bit soft, but I cut the, the commission some slack because, you know, for the first couple of years, they're getting an industry up and running. Right. And, and, and yes, they're supposed to leverage this, this, this body to, to help to do that, but it's a lot to take on, to organize these meetings and to, to get the feedback from all. So um, I think it's been um, it's definitely uh, been more and more um, active. That's my experience. Although in the earlier days, I think the, the advisory board did make some really important recommendations that that led to things like like the um, exclusivity period and the wholesale licenses. Um, but my experience is that it's it's being taken more seriously than ever. And we're really excited about putting these recommendations out and the opportunity for us to fix some of these issues that have a really significant impact on operators and also on consumers you mentioned uh expanding access to for veterans yeah like what are some of the things you're like kind of considering or proposing that would help veterans yeah so gosh i'd have to go back to my recommendations to remember exactly where we landed and we had some really um and and i apologize because i've been so focused on lag lab recommendations the last couple of weeks but um you know I think that uh, one of the things that we were um, we were recommending is allowing um, allowing any I'm trying to think of the 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 wording, but some right now VA doctors can't recommend cannabis. So is um, it maybe the Stephen Mandilli bill? Like, cause I know we, we've covered that. Yeah, yeah. So he was, he was, Stephen Mandilli is, he, he came and spoke before our subcommittee and he was really, I think, extremely, um, extremely helpful in helping us to shape what these, what these recommendations should look like, but really is trying to break down some of these barriers of needing this doctor's recommendation to be able to, to certify for medical cannabis. So if you have some sort of qualifying condition, 
based on your VA um, diagnosis this that you chart, can yep. automatically be enrolled without having that, you know, that right off from the doctor. Um, so um, that, that was part of it. I, I, I feel bad because I'm blanking on some of the, some of the other. No, it's okay. I'm, I'm springing this on you. So I, um, I, yeah. I, I should have came prepared with all my subcommittee recommendations, but uh, this past week, um, the Globe reported on on some of the lab recommendations that that our subcommittee has put forth as well. And again, this is something that you know we take really seriously when we take up an issue like lab testing because it has implications on 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 all sides of the industry, right? On the one hand, this is the mechanism for making sure that the products that are going out to our consumers are safe. That you know, especially when we're talking about medical patients, that they're getting you know a, a, a product that's not going to make them sicker, right? Um, it's how we understand dosing and we know how much to take and, and can sort of gauge the impact. So it's really, really important that we have accurate lab testing on the consumer side of things. And then on the operate, operator side of things, it's extremely expensive. And it's, you know, it's not super clear some of these protocols for how you do the testing, for how you label, for what, how you define THC on your label. So a lot of our recommendations really um, are around uh, clarifying and, and, and creating some, some, uh, some clear definitions specifically as it relates to, to THC. Oh, Kim's, Kim's here. Cool. Yeah, she is. That's why I was just sending a message. Yeah. Hey, Kim. Hey, everyone. I am so sorry that I am late, but it sounds like you're having a great discussion. We sure are. How are you doing? Oh, it's been a day. It's still going on. We'll continue after this, but i um, happy to step away from that and uh, join you guys. You got your <laughs> oh. internet fixed. Yes. I, it's a uh, um, Verizon, and uh, I had a Starlink, but it's not set up, and I should have set it up <laughs> is the lesson. <laughs> like... Having wires is an issue, so just been dealing with that. Well, thank Everyone's you. favorite we're, pastime. We're glad <laughs> you're here. We're we're talking about uh, you know reg different uh, recommendations for the uh, Mass Cannabis Advisory Board. Amanda was talking about testing. Um, I want to hear more about the the testing. Like, what what kind of things are are you considering right now, Amanda? Yes. So 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 that's you know one recommendation is just like define what THC means, right? Some operators are 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 you know you know you've got THC, you've got THCA, you've got all these different components, and and how you actually put those on the label is is it can be inconsistent from 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 label to label, from operator to operator. So getting some consistency there. Um, uh, creating standards for our labs and figuring out how we do that, right? Um, we have, you know, different, the same products, you send them to two different labs, you're getting, you know, two different testing methods, you're getting different results. How do we ensure that, um, that these results are accurate or as accurate as, you know, within a range of accuracy? And when we're talking about a live plant product, you know, there is going to be some change over time to that product. So, um, it's never going to be perfect is my understanding of it, but how do we ensure that, you know, there are there lab shopping is something that, you know, you hear about where, where folks are sending their, their stuff to a certain lab because they're getting higher numbers at that lab. Um, and so we're really trying to understand what's going on. Why are we getting these different results? Um, 
how can we create standards that the labs can be held to? You know, how do we audit the labs to make sure that they're not fudging the numbers? How can we hold operators accountable for what they're putting on the label being accurate to what the lab results are? But then, you know, we also we also recommend utilizing the secret shopper program, which the you know the commission has at their disposal to make sure. Um, and I think one of the things that came up in our last meeting, it, uh, Commissioner Roy had had suggested that perhaps they are already using this program and we just don't know about it. But we want to make sure that um, that it is being utilized and it's being utilized in a way that's sort of um, fair, right? Because I also think that you can have a situation where a dispensary puts something on the label because that's what the lab said it was, and then they get a you know a different result back from a secret shop. And you know, not now are they to be penalized for the result that they got from the lab? Did that product actually change over time? And so now it's coming up as a different result. So it's a really difficult thing for us to regulate, but it's something that I think that we need to get a little bit tighter around and we need to continue to work on. And so a working group that works directly with the, the CCC on, on these issues on an ongoing basis and, and brings experts in and brings in policy um, research from other you know best practices from other markets so that we can continue to evaluate how to ensure that our products are safe and tested and labeled appropriately so people can use them safely, but we're not putting undue burden on operators either because, you know, one of my, my biggest concerns um, and things that I want us to look at as we're going into this regulatory review period is sort of eliminating some of what I like to call like, like the boogeyman regulations, you know, the regulations that are there because, you know, it's cannabis and like we have to treat it so much differently. So like, um, you know, just being practical about how, what, you know, the additional costs. And so I, I don't want to be in a position where we're laying on, we're laying so many additional regulations on operators that the folks who are the least resourced are the ones who are going to be hurt the most by that. Right. So when you, you know, when you think about, you know, adding lab costs and testing costs, you know, who is that going to impact the most? you know, the, the folks who are already struggling to control their costs. So I just want to make sure that if we're going to recommend that operators take on another test, that we look at the whole thing and also look at areas where we can, we can save them money, but also create safe protocols, whether that's process validation where, you know, we're validating the process for how you're growing your cannabis free from pesticides and, and that you can't use. And we're doing tests, but not on every single batch, right? So that's something that they, you know, that's a tool that certain states have have leveraged. Hey, Amanda, before you before you run too far away from it, I wanted to jump in real quick, just circling back to making these recommendations. The piece about common sense, I think, is I mean, we've been saying that since the beginning, right? That cannabis legalization is just common sense, and we have some form of legalization, and we have what seems to be an ongoing lack, <laughs> extreme lack of common sense from lots of corners of the industry. Um, one thing I wanted to add as far as the groups who are concerned about the testing and certainly operators are concerned, but also consumers, patients, right? Like they need to understand what it is they're getting and what it means and how they can best use it, especially if you're a patient. If you're looking for something specific to target some genetic trait that you have, you want to know that this is exactly what it is. And that goes to building um, 
consumer confidence, which ultimately builds to industry credibility. So we've said all, all along, you know, cannabis is safer, and this is a great thing to do for the country, for the world. We need to prove that now. And I think these regulations or these recommendations you guys are have been working on really serve to do that. I just want to make sure that we don't lose focus um, or, or not call attention to the very important groups that really all benefit from this change. Just for what it's worth, I did talk about patients and consumers at the very beginning of this lab conversation is that's really the, at the heart of why we do lab testing, right? It's so to keep if I wasn't tardy. <laughs> if your internet wasn't working. You yeah, you have an excuse yeah. on that. So, uh, yeah, I want to uh, like jump in, too, because the mass secret shopper program, like it was kind of like just kind of sprung out there, but we don't really know what's going on. Like the public doesn't know. It seems like even the cannabis control commissioners don't know. What, what are your comments on this mass secret shopper program? Do you have any additional comments on that kind of like the, the fact that we don't know all the details of what's actually happening? I mean... Are they using it right now? Or is this just an unknown thing that they know they have to use? I feel like it's like the um, leadership ratings that <laughs> dispensaries are also supposed to get for performance or outstanding performance in certain areas. I think this that one is less relevant or less important. Not that it's not a good thing, but not as important as the secret shop shopper program. So um, I personally don't know enough about it. I haven't heard reference to it up until recently. Um, so I can't say as to whether or not it's actually happening. So I'll add to that is, I mean, I think kind of the, the purpose of the program is for it to be a secret, right? And 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 so we're not going to know if they're going out on a sting, but um, this was one of our recommendations to use this, you know, to, 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 you know, to use this program that you have already at your disposal. You don't even have to make a regulatory change to do it. Um, as I mentioned earlier on, uh, Commissioner Roy has been, um, in attendance at every single one of our at our of our research subcommittee meetings and um, and to this you know to, on, on this topic you know she she sort of made a, a point at the last meeting to say you know I, I can't say whether or not that it's that it's that it's in 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 in, in progress or but it's there for a reason let's just leave it at that right mm -hmm. um, I don't know I, I I would think that if there are issues being um, uncovered through that program, one would hope that we would hear about it. Um, and, and so, you know, I think there's a number of different scenarios. It could be that it's not in use yet. It could be that it's in use, but it hasn't really turned up anything that's concerning. It could be that it has, and they're trying to deal with it. Um, we don't know. Um, so I think it's all speculation from there, but it's, I think a definitely an important tool. But I think for, for me, my, my one concern about the, the, the secret shopper program is, um, you know, how you deal with this is sort of like, what do you do with that information once you have it? And who's responsible if you do see sort of this discrepancy between what's, uh, what's coming out of these dispenser, dispens dispensaries, which most of which aren't even producing their own products um and what's what's being reported from from the secret secret shopper program and so you know i just think we have to be thoughtful about um understanding that the composition of uh, the cannabis plant changes over time and so you know 
THC may look one way when you put it in the container and it sits on the shelf for a couple months and it looks a different way when it gets tested again. And so I think, you know, part of the working group and, and understand, you know, is for us to like dig a little deeper on some of these issues and not just make recommendations about things that we don't know enough about. We acknowledge that we like don't know quite enough about some of these things um, and that we need to understand better. Like, okay, if there, if we do see discrepancies, what do we then do with that information and how do we, you know, bring everybody up to the standards that we need to be at the labs, the operators, um, everybody. Um, so. Good stuff. Thank you so much. Um, there's a, other things too that, you know, obviously we cover quite a bit on this show, uh, worker safety and just the worker issue right now. Um, I, I guess I could go two different places on this, but the first one I'll, I'll go to is um, with workers like, a lot of them are listening to the show. I know tonight and they, they listen often or they, you know, listen to it later, but they're starting to realize that they need to do more than just come on the show. And they're starting to get organized and starting to work together. How, how can they kind of uh, reach out to the mass cannabis advisory board or even have an effect you think on what's going on with the advisory board right now? So um, I'll jump in. It's the same process I would recommend as we've done for everything, right? We pool our voices together. We communicate what our key talking points are or begin to have some sort of understanding and alignment of beliefs and ideals and goals. And then we can begin to communicate those broadly. Um, I know I've been reached out to by a number of or contacted from by a number of people who are interested in doing that. And it's really inspiring to see folks who have an entirely different experience in the industry, one that is unique um, and yet so important, uh, but is, has yet gone on very unre unrepresented. Um, so I like to see that. I like to see that they're getting together um, and I, I would just encourage them to keep going, right? There's, there's no, um, nothing gained if you don't risk anything. So make the call, reach out to somebody, your legislative um, officials, anyone in uh, the regu regulatory agencies, and not just the cannabis-specific people. Talk to everybody. Um, there's a lot of folks who work in either employment or labor law and have uh, had a lot of input on changes to the laws of regarding labor and employment in Massachusetts over the past few years, and those laws don't get changed um, in a vacuum. It takes a lot of input and participation, and if you want to make changes that matter, I would say focus broadly, you know, um, don't focus just on the cannabis industry because the stuff happening here is not unique to the cannabis industry. It's across the, across the workforce. Um, and it's really unfortunate. Um, probably so unfortunate to me because this is a new industry. We felt like starting it, we'd have this great opportunity to get rid of all that stuff, but turns out a lot of it's come with us. Um, I don't think it's too late to change course and um, sort of correct what issues there are. And also I've said this a lot, if you were at Nikian on Saturday, I'm, I'm gonna say it again, but culture is super important. And right now, I don't think that the culture we thought was gonna happen is what we have. And you can feel the tension, right? Like oh my God. people want change, people want something different. Right. So let's work together to figure out what that different is and create a culture that we all you know, feel like being a part of and doesn't, quite frankly, doesn't suck to be a part of. Glad you brought that up because I, I feel like that a lot lately. It's like not what I envisioned, you know. It, it could totally. be so much better. I go to Maine and I'm just like, that's the kind of market that 
I want to see you know, the, what they do in medical up there is amazing. I wish we could see that everywhere. Um, Amanda, do you have any comment on that stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, as, as an advisory board member, I, I always sort of welcome folks to reach out. So that's, I mean, you know, I won't speak for, for the entire advisory board, but I, you know, I've, I've put out calls to hear from folks on, on just about all of the issues that I, my advisory uh, subcommittees have been, um, have been talking through. So, um, you know, as it relates to how can you interact, I mean, just do it, you know, just reach out if you have something to say. Um, and, um, you know, I'm all, I, I'm all ears. And I think most of the members of the advisory board, you know, are, feel the same way. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it, not to be cliche, but like our, our, you know, our voices are, are louder when they're one, right? And so to the extent that, that folks can get aligned and come to the table with solutions um, and not just- Criticize. Criticism, right? Yeah. Because listen, I mean, it's it's, it's all, it is a new industry and like, you know, some things have to develop over time. Right. And so we, I think um, to the extent that we can be collaborative, you know, that's going to be the best path forward. Um, so I think, you know, come, come to the table with solutions of what you want to see changed and how we can get there. Um, and yeah, I, it's, it's definitely to Kim's point, this is not a, just a specific cannabis industry issue. You know, we have workers dealing with the same types of issues all over the, all over the country right now. Um, one suggestion, like the, uh, I know the workers are working on some of their policy proposals actually. And like, I know one of them, I'm not, I'm not going to go through all of them cause I, I don't have them in front of me, but I just know that one of them is to create like advisory boards within big cultivation sites uh, like safety groups, employee run safety groups within the organizations and mandate that that has to happen. Is that something that you think would be doable? I mean, it's definitely something that I've done within organizations that I've worked for. And I think it is doable. And I think it's a really effective tool for hearing from people about what the issues, you know, they're dealing. I mean, it's the bet getting information directly from your frontline employees is, is extremely important. Right. And then what you do with that information once you have it. Um, so I think mandating that, I, I think there could certainly be some sort of, I mean, the, a mandate, a mandate that we have a health and safety, health and safety programs, I think is something that wasn't, didn't initially exist in the industry and, and came over time, you know, that we actually have to do these things now. Um, so I think we can keep building on that, right? So it's beyond just having a program, how do you make sure the employee voices are actually heard? Um, yes. It's an interesting idea, you know, whether or not you can mandate a company does that, I think it's, it's a question mark. And I think, um, but I think it's definitely something companies should do. Um, it's something that companies would benefit from doing. And I think, you know, when it comes to worker safety, um, being in front of it is going to, to save you in the long run. It's going to save you money. It's going to save you headache, right? Getting a really strong program in place from day one, but that it's not enough just to have the protocols and the rules and the systems in place. 
you then have to have sort of this feedback loop and you have to have continual improvement. All of those things are just like, it's a lot of work and it's hard to do for any organization, right? And so to the extent that workers can be collaborative and come forth with ideas that are constructive within your organizations and more broadly within the, the regulatory framework and to your policymakers, I mean, I think um, that that's a really important first step. I would, I'm going to add that I think, yes, you, you could potentially mandate something like this. Um, it could be a suggested or required piece of a diversity plan if you considered it to be like an employee resource group type of thing. Um, I also just want to come right out and say that people have a real issue with the word diversity, equity, and inclusion, and social equity. It just, for some reason, triggers people into thinking like, oh, I've got to give all these advantages to people who aren't me or whatever, you know, like it, it just makes people not want to do it. And yet when they are recipients of that, they benefit from it. Companies do better when they have these plans. So it, it really does make sense to do it. I'm wondering if it's an issue of like marketing, pitching it, couching it such that it actually kind of is not so unappetizing, like putting some sugar on it. Um, so if you think about these types of groups that you recommended, Mike, as like a well-being or health group, something of that sort that really kind of branches out and provides information beyond just um, what ha is happening in the actual on the sales floor or in the cult. Um, you're talking about how's your mental health, right? And how can we support employees in their lives in the building and outside the building so they feel better? And for me, it drives back to culture that's helping to create this idea that it's more than just your job, that you're showing up to, you know, grind some weed, um, roll some sleeves, whatever. Um, I, I would like to see it build as that. And I think more people would kind of get into it, especially when they see what kind of programs they have going on there, that it's more than just to actually, that you can actually benefit from it when you're part of the program. So yes, I think you can mandate it. And I would love to see some companies voluntarily do it because it sounds, I think it sounds like a pretty cool thing to do. <laughs> Yeah, we love that. Is that your uh, baby? Yes, this is Shay. You want to say hi? Three hey! years old. She, it's her birthday. Hey! Hi, Shay. Hey, Shay. Oh, my God. Are you, is your birthday today? Is it your birthday today? No. No? No? Oh, I thought it was. How old you? No. <laughs> She's just razzing you. <laughs> oh, you're cute. Shady, how old are you? Hello. Are you three? No. No, okay. You're She's three? No? <laughs> Here's silly. Okay, go see the pizza. It's here. Oh, <laughs> Big pizza house here. Okay. Sorry about that. No, no, that was fun. Um, I'm, I'm going back now. I'm like, I gotta go back to serious now. I'm having fun. I'm enjoying this. Uh, you know what? I'm gonna go to some comments right now. I think I haven't even read any of them. So actually, one person wrote, "Here it is. Happy birthday." Aw, thank you. Another one was keep, keep up the great work, Kim, from a Facebook user. Ooh, thanks. <laughs> oh, here's one I want to put up because this guy is a, like a, a lab testing guy. Pretty sure. I think this is Chris. I got to meet. Actually, I got to meet up with this guy. I think this is Chris from ProVerti. He says, how can there be any accuracy in reporting or labeling when there is no clear definition of potency? Labs are free to moisture correct, inflate data or not to include other, I don't even know what that word is, isomers yeah. or not. 
based on how data is manipulated, there can easily be 30% variance in reported values based on the exact same analytical data. And at least so far, this is still all okay under Massachusetts guidelines. So there's a lab testing guy. He's in the business. He's calling it out. Do you have any comments on that? Maybe a minute. I, I mean, just that I agree, right? And it's something that I, you know, that I've brought up a number of times is like my understanding is that labs can actually test with different processes. Um, and how can we possibly be getting to the same answers? And I don't know the answer because like this is all it's, you know, it's, I don't, I don't know the answer other than to say, and what we've been recommending is like, how do we get to some standards, standardization of this process? And we need help from the labs to figure it out, especially the honest labs who want to do the right thing because they're out there, right? Um, and, and we've had a lot of support from the labs on these recommendations in terms of, of, of having more standardization and, and, and utilizing best practices. You know, one other piece, um, not, not, I agree with everything you just said. Uh, one other piece, not to change the subject, that, we've, that we're, we're pushing for with the lab recommendations also is, um, looking at my microbials and how we test for microbials. And um, right now, and I might butcher how I, how I say this, I'm using layman's terms here because I'm not a sci scientific person, but right now we only we, 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 we have a threshold for microbials. And if you're above that threshold, then, it, then you fail, right? But we're not distinguishing between bad microbes and good microbes. There are such thing, right? And those good microbes, they're found in like the best ways to grow cannabis, in living soil, in organic earth, right? And so a lot of these organic farmers, um, which is the most sustainable way to grow cannabis, right? It, it, they are failing and they're being shut out because their products are failing for my microbials. And so what we've recommend recommended is to adjust those limits to only test for those things that are actually going to be harmful for the consumer, as opposed to just having this sort of across the board uh, limit for microbial. So that's another one that I think is really important for consumers and for operators, right? It's a win-win. You, you know, you want more soil grown, sun grown, living soil, cannabis out there um, in the market, in my opinion, right? And you want people to be able to utilize greenhouses and other, other ways uh, that don't, you know, require so much energy. Um, so, and, and it's organic, you know, it's like, we want that and let's not discourage people from, from being able to do that. So that's just another one that I wanted to call out that I think it, it shouldn't be contentious. Another similar comment uh, came in from YouTube. He said uh, some labs report using 0% moisture correction to inflate the THC value. Why is this now accepted in the Massachusetts market? It's, it's pretty much the same comment as Chris. So uh, I think we just addressed that. that was yeah, I don't, I don't know. And, and just to be clear, the advisory board doesn't, doesn't make the rules. Um, I, I, I can't, and, and especially as it relates to the testing protocol. And remember the testing protocol came, it was carried over from the DPH, right? And from the medical program. So, you know, we've had some adjustments to the testing protocol, but it, it, it is a carryover and something that like we really need to spend some time, I think, digging into. And we also get some of the, what you had mentioned earlier, Amanda, stigma. We got some of that coming in on a comment. I'm going to post that one. Uh, this is from Twitch, of course. We always get the worst comments from Twitch, but I like these comments. 
He says, how about you work instead of smoking? I hate this drug. It's the devil on earth for real. They're still out there. I mean, I bet I work twice as many hours every week as that guy does. Right? It's nice of you. (laughs) Twitch. Don't you love Twitch? I love Twitch. Comments just, I'm like, okay, well, that's someone I don't need to talk to. (laughs) You know what, though? I love it because we never, like, like we're starting to get comments from Twitch and I love when they come in because it's they're either like awesome, really good comments or they're like this, which is yeah, it's awesome I mean, in a different way. I, exactly. I'll actually, I'll take that back and I'll say it reminds me that there's still work to do, right? There's still people out there who have a certain perception who may react to a certain way. Um, and it keeps me on my game. Like I've heard some, some comments about, you know, the evils of cannabis of late that like it's, it's worse than gambling, like, or it's the same as gambling. It's just, you know, it's, um, again, keeps me on my toes, keeps me young. <laughs> Once I get over the initial shock of the fact that folks, we can have this much legalization, decrim, medical, et cetera. And people are still like, I can't believe it. And clearly there are active people consuming cannabis in this world. Some of the most. <laughs> Yeah, and there's a lot of productive people consuming alcohol and all kinds of other drugs, I mean, and functioning at significantly less levels that are less functional levels that we readily accept, not to marry the two and not be able to tear them apart. But I really don't think that weed is that bad. <laughs> like, no, not at all. Look at, look at Paul McCartney. I mean, look at a guy like Paul McCartney. You telling me he's not a hard worker? I mean, guy's still out playing shows. I mean. I don't yeah. know. I just think they're out to lunch when they say stuff like this. We got a follow-up question from Proverty Lab Labs on uh, the testing discussion. They are asking, uh, there is not a clear understanding of ex- exactly what microbes are dangerous. How many are you going to require testing for? There is more than just E. coli and salmonella and asparagus that are potentially harmful. I- I'd be curious what... Proverde's recommendation is around this and how we resolve, you know, I'm, I'm all ears. I, I don't, I don't claim to know what the answer is. I know that there are other, you know, other ways to approach it that, ha- that other markets are, you know, are utilizing. Um, I, but I think that we should not be shutting people out and we have to, we have to find a way to distinguish uh, between, you know, what, what's harmful and, and not um, there have been, people who are smarter than me on this topic who have wrote extensively um, and petitioned to the CCC to make recommendations on exactly which microbes to test for. And I, you know, I would recommend that we take a hard look at, at, at that, at this petition that was made to the, the CCC. And, and I think the labs need to be involved in the conversation. I don't think anyone's trying to shut out the labs. I think they have, you know, more insight onto some of this than others. Um, but I also don't think that it's, you know, uh, that it's, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Fair is not the word that I'm looking for, but I think there's a lot of disparities between how, you know, how things are handled across the, the, the many different labs that we have here in the state um, and, and that folks are looking for some consistency. Hey, Noah. Another question uh, that I want to ask you both is there's a lot of layoffs happening right now. Is it is that an opportunity to open up the industry more to kind of like I look at Maine? I always go back to Maine. 
you know, 3,000 licensed caregivers. Yeah, it's, I love it up there. Is there an opportunity to, to like even look at, like we relax the rules on caregivers a little bit, but they still can't be a, a for-profit business. Is there an opportunity to like make caregivers like totally like Maine where they can have a business out of it? I think there's always that opportunity, right? Like the layoffs, and I wouldn't necessarily relate the two. Certainly um, someone who is was hoping to go into that business might find themselves with more time and be able to if they were recently laid off. Um, but apart from that, I think that caregivers, the issue of caregivers is just such an important one. Um, if I'll bring it back to the patients specifically, if you find something that works for you, that's what you should use, right? Why are you going to continue looking? Um, I have a friend whose son had ATRT and um, he was diagnosed at five months old. She's up in Maine. She was able to have one of the um, a provider up there create a special tincture for him or a special blend just for him. And she was able to administer it through D2 at Children's Hospital in Boston. Um, it was exactly how this should work, you know, and the fact that it's like so rare and, and she had to go out and find that on her own. I mean, it's, it's to me an endless sob story, um, one that should never happen, but yet continues to happen. I'm going to keep talking, baby. She wants me to stop talking. Maybe she has a point. I, I mean, I'm generally in favor of 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 of, of lowering barriers for to okay. to get into the industry. Um, and and you know, I think that's it's definitely an interesting thought. Um, I think we're definitely seeing uh, a bit of a reckoning in this industry with all of these layoffs and you know some of these these companies that got too big for, for their britches. Right. And just got in too deep and, and, and are now, you know, having to make these, these decisions that, you know, they're not good for anybody. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, I think just finding, you know, continue, not only, not only exploring things like, can we open up the industry? Do we can we have a stronger caregiver program, but like, how do we take, these other licensing opportunities that we've tried to create with lower barriers, like the delivery licenses that are, you know, exclusively available to, to, you know, to certain groups. Um, how do we make those licenses more approachable and, and less expensive and, 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 and reduce the burdens there as well. So I think that, I think that we, we should be, be looking at all of these avenues for bringing more people into the industry um, and, and opening up access. I would I love do. that. I, I want to add on uh, micro grows. Like I got a friend who's a you know licensed micro. He grows very small cultivation. Um, they're getting ripped off by the the dispensaries in a lot of cases. It would be so much better if we could buy directly from those guys too. Like they're small. Like why are we not yeah. letting them sell direct to customers? I, I love that. I actually love that, and I think that would be even you know, more practical approach than, than, than broadening the, the caregiver program. I think uh, like a direct to consumer, uh, you know, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, or maybe you're not sure, but like, I think that there's the, the craft cooperative license allows for D to C, but like nobody can get it done because it's just like so burdensome. Right. So you like, so, you know, that's the other thing. Like we create these license types 
that are supposed to be more accessible, but then we, we layer in these rules that like make them like almost unfeasible from a business perspective. So right. I, I just want to yeah. add and jump in real quick to add that micro businesses actually can ha get a delivery endorsement so that they can deliver direct to consumer in Massachusetts. They can. So that's okay, I mean, I was of not the delivery is the okay. <laughs> not the delivery is the greatest. <laughs> I don't know that they're going to be making with the way the regulations are. I don't know if delivery is the most advantageous endeavor. However, if they can do it right and they can deliver direct to consumer, it might expand. Um, certainly, if we get rid of the two driver requirement, that would help. Sorry to interrupt, Amanda. No, I or or what about allowing um, craft cultivators to to have social consumption sites, right? Similar to like a craft brewery where you go exactly. and you, you know they have a tap house. Like it's actually a lot more practical. Wicked than, practical. It makes sense. Running delivery or, or or allowing them to have a small retail outlet, right? Because delivery. Delivery yeah, delivery is tough and vast so too. Hard. It's so yep. hard to do and it's so expensive. And you know, I'll just say, like, we gotta get rid of the two driver rule, right? Because that's like one thing that's really, really easy Ridiculous. for us to do that will help these delivery operators reduce some of their costs. But it's we don't have the population density across the state to make delivery a really viable business opportunity for a lot of people. Like you just don't have we don't have you don't have the infrastructure. You don't so if so I like the idea of being able to go to a craft grow that's growing my beautiful craft cannabis and having a consumption area where I can try it and then take some home. I just love that. That, that and that's like tourists too. Like like. Think about it. It's like when you go to like a vineyard, you know what I mean? You go to the wine tasting. It's the same idea. It's like it creates tourism. It's 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 what you want. I, I think that's such a good idea. For those listening at home, I will say that there are opportunities like that that present themselves currently <laughs> across the state. Um, since the commission hasn't, at least to date, um, put those regulations for social consumption in place such that people can take advantage of those license types. There are, I mean, it's legal to consume in certain places at certain times under certain circumstances. There are ways that you could potentially look into doing that if you're as interested. Um, social clubs, et cetera, those are things that people who really want to get a jump on it and maybe kind of wet their, you know, wet their beak a little, see what it's like. Um, before going forward and applying for the license, um, that might be something to look into. I know folks are doing it now in the state, a um, couple spots in Cambridge, et cetera. Uh, I, I think the future looks great for social, social consumption. And if you're wondering how you can get into the industry, that might be an excellent opportunity. So you're telling me this, there's a couple social consumption spots in Cambridge right now? In the works. And it's in more like, I think if you think about it like events, so originally under when we first legalized question four um, and then the ballot or the ballot measure was rewritten, um, there were single day or event type licenses That's for right. social yep. consumption. So if, if you look at it like that, as in like, you don't necessarily need to have a license that you possess and that's all that you do. You could get a license for something that you're just going to do this one time. Um, and you're an event company that now this is a social consumption event it really opens up the opportunity. Uh, I would like to see them put that into place and really get the regulations around that, um, such that they're common sense, that they're practicable, and people can make the money that was promised to them. <laughs> and I think before they do that or while they're doing that, they should also extend 
the exclusivity period for social consumption, especially, and delivery. Because with the two-driver requirement, folks have not been able to make that generational wealth that you know, was promised to them. Um, and if we have, if they do actually move to remove the requirement, which it sounds like they might be doing, um, it'll be a really short time that folks get to kind of hit the, start to hit the sweet spot before it's taken away and opened up to everyone. So um, an extension of the exclusivity period for social consumption and delivery licenses, I think would be beneficial in terms of really making sure that we hit that social equity um, high watermark that we'd set for ourselves. Excellent. Uh, we had a follow-up comment from Chris Sadula again from ProVerdi. He said, I could provide peer-reviewed literature and have in the past on what microbes are common to cannabis that are potentially harmful to humans. Um, if he wants to send that to you, how, how can he send that information to you, Amanda or Kim? Yeah, uh, Dr. McNabb posted, I believe, uh, our draft recommendations. Um, I mean, feel free to, to reach out to me directly. Um, I can leave an email address if, if you want, but um, I, they may, we may have already, well, we do have, I guess somebody has made these recommendations already to what these harmful pathogens are. And I wonder if, if Chris has, has played a role in that already. So I'm not sure, but uh, I'd be willing to definitely have whatever information that he has available and, and take that in. Awesome. And for, for my part, we are having, uh, we have two tentatively scheduled, market participation subcommittee meetings. One is uh, Monday, April 10th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. The second is Friday, April 28th, also from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. We will be hearing from workers at at least one of, if not both of those. We try to take public comment. So uh, Chris, uh, folks from ProVerity, anyone watching, listening, if you want to join in and, and share constructive thoughts on how we can do better um, or call attention to things that we should be considering, please join. There will be a public notice posted on the commission's website, um, should be posted within the next couple of weeks as well as an agenda. But um, those are great opportunities to connect and um, share your thoughts. Thank you so much, Kim and Appley. Uh, we have two uh, Massachusetts Cannabis Advisory Board members tonight as guests. We're very honored that you both uh, spending some time with us answering the questions. Um, to wrap it up, like, is there anything that you want to kind of discuss or bring up or bring attention to tonight that we didn't touch on? I'm going to take an opportunity to step in right here because I was late, as we all know. Um, and just for what we're talking about, just give a preview of the upcoming advisory board meeting for market participation. We are talking still about discounting, allowing for discounting and consumer um loyalty programs on the adult use side that currently only exist on the medical side. And that's just a huge mistake. Prices are bottoming out. Folks can't breed customer loyalty. Um, and they can't, there's just a lot of issues with it. We'll talk more about it, but that is something that is near and dear to my heart. And I can't wait to dive back into that. The removing the requirement of vertical integration is another piece that we think is very important. Again, on the medical side, you're required to be vertically integrated, have cultivation, processing, and retail sales. And you also pay a lot more for those prices or for those uh, license types. So we're looking to make sure that um, everyone has an opportunity to jump in and serve the medical community of patients. Um, and we hope to do that through removing that requirement and aligning the fee structures. Um, there was also one interesting thing that I don't know how how you feel about this, Mike, and I know, Amanda, you've heard about this before, but one of the proposals was to lower the employment age oh. for uh, working Work in the cannabis industry in mass to 18. 
Um, just, you know, that's something where we have at least one member who's interested in, in talking about and is going to provide us some, some facts and details around that. But that thought that'd be cool to let folks know might have more opportunities in the cannabis industry for folks if we do that. Um, and, and a larger, I think, access to more employees as well. I think that's part of, you know, just, you know, broadening the um, applicant pool. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, I, I would say just my, my, as, as we're going into, and I, I've, I touched on this a little bit, but as, as, as we're going into this regulatory review period with the Cannabis Control Commission, um, as the advisory board is, is making recommendations through the various subcommittees, I just want to like, you know, my, my objective here is to continue to push us towards a more, you know, practical and, um, and, and less sort of, um, I, I want I want us to be thinking about this industry less from a place of fear and more from a place of progress, right? And 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 moving things forward. Now we have years and years under our belts of of having legal cannabis. The sky has not fallen. You know, we should be really scrutinizing um, everything to say like, is this necessary? Is it protecting? Is it helping? Is it hurting right and and should we get rid of it or should we we revise it and so like things like the two driver rule right things like vertical integration where it's you know why shouldn't patients be able to access cannabis at every single dispensary in the state like that's just crazy um you know some of the security measures and the costs that go into outfitting our our delivery vehicles um testing and 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 how how we do testing like let's look at all of this through the lens of we have data now and, 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 you know, we have years and years of information that we can build off of and, and stop starting from a place of like, we have to put in the strictest rules we can um, to make sure that people feel comfortable with this. So like, I'm, I'm really encouraged about what we're hearing from the commissioners about the things that are important to them to change. I think we have a really proactive commission right now that's, that's eager to take some of these things on. And I think we need to take advantage of that um, as an advisory board, but as the public in general as well. And we talked about what workers can be doing, be part of, you know, be part of the conversation, come together, come with solutions. So, you know, just to kind of reiterate some of the stuff we talked about today, there's a real opportunity and the time is right uh, to make some big changes in how we do this. And we've been a leader here in Massachusetts. Other markets are watching, right? Uh, New Jersey, Connecticut, New York, these, these, these guys are all just coming online. Um, what we do really matters and it shapes the trajectory of East Coast cannabis. Um, so I, I hope that we, uh, we can get it right and we'll continue to make progress and, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I want to, can I add one thing or two yes. things just quickly? So, um, on, on the topic of holding folks accountable, being accountable, I, yes, like we all have responsibility to actively participate, but like, I, I, I don't want to let this go past this night, this opportunity to go past without saying that. The companies that are putting find their bottom dollar and like money ahead of their patients, their consumers, their employees, like you guys, <laughs> this is one of those vibe check situations where we have to be like, you know what? Hmm. I wouldn't like it if that were done to me. Maybe I shouldn't support that, you know? And we do this like, in, in, again, more than just the cannabis industry, you know, there are companies that are burning down the Amazon rainforest and, you know, enslaving children in foreign countries. Like, and we still buy their products. We don't have to, we shouldn't, 
right? We should do better than that. So let's all take some accountability and vote with our dollars uh, and support people who support policies that support us. I think that's like, for me, just like the headline, um, this industry and in general for this world, I feel like everybody could be doing just a little bit better, myself included. Um, and I know that's not really about the cannabis industry, but I think it, it does tie back into it because if we get too focused on the small stuff, um, we lose sight of the bigger picture, which is like, what did we all start this for? To make the world a better place, right? So I'm such a hippie on your show, Mike. Thank you so much. <laughs> I just got a funny comment I want to put up too. This is a good one. Great show, MC. Hate the curtains. I don't put my stuff they don't like my curtains. I didn't pick the curtains. My my girlfriend bought those. I like Aww. them. I mean, I don't know. Larry. What's wrong with the curtains? Are they bad? Do you guys not like them? I, I just like want to know what's outside the curtains. Like, what's <laughs> behind the curtains? That's that's what I was wondering. <laughs> you want me to open up the curtains tonight? For, yeah, like, what surprised us one show? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You can, you can all you'll take see bets my car. as to what it is. You'll, you'll, you'll see my car. It's basically oh, okay. it. Outside, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. You'll see me. You'll see where we smoke. <laughs> well, that's, you know, worth it. Yeah. It's our patio. <laughs> yeah. It's a mystery. So, Yes. It's very funny, though. Uh, I want to thank you both so much for being here tonight. This was a great conversation. I think we covered a lot of territory. Um, how can we how can people get in touch with you or reach out if they want to, you know, just touch base? Is there any email or contact form? How, how would they touch base if they wanted to give you feedback on anything tonight? I'm on Facebook. Um, friends with Mike. So if you find Mike's page, you can find me. Um, I am. Um, on Instagram, Kim Napoli ESQ, and I'm on LinkedIn, and my email is Kim at Kim Napoli ESQ.com. So, awesome. Yeah. I'm also in all of those places. LinkedIn is probably the, the easiest place to find me. Um, I think I'm the only Matarostano on LinkedIn. Um, I'm also on Instagram, A Rossitano. I'm on Facebook, but not sure if people can see me on Facebook. I don't know how my settings are, but definitely you can get me on, on LinkedIn and on, on Instagram. Um, and uh, yeah, looking forward to hearing from folks. Thank you Absolutely. so much for being here tonight. Amanda Rosatano and Kim Napoli, both uh, Massachusetts Cannabis Advisory Board members. And you can see they care about this. A lot of the same things we do, which is uh, a, a better cannabis industry. I mean, we just need it really. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Amanda. Take care.